The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and you join us for The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I am joined by Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Gracho Tendency blog, and of course the big political story of the day. We're recording this just one day after Ed Ball's Day. Yes. What a big moment in the political <laughs> calendar every year. Happy <laughs> Ed Ball's for, Day, Simon. For those, for those who don't actually know what it is, do, do explain it, because it's extraordinary. I saw a piece about this, admittedly sent by a friend, in the New York Times, you know, pointing <laughs> out that 10 years years on you would have thought uh, this would have just disappeared but it keeps going so just no. explain what happened please so about 10 years ago ed balls at the time shadow chancellor and ed Miliband. Uh, doesn't that seem like a long time ago now i always yeah. seem to be saying that these days <laughs> yes. um ed balls uh, tweeted his own name out and the tweet went viral and it's become an annual celebration on the 28th of April yes. ever since. So it was his first tweet, wasn't it? And his first tweet just said Ed Balls. Yeah, happy, happy uh, Ed Balls Day. Or yes, which he could have deleted. I think the fact that, I mean, he's one of those politicians that seems to sort of like going along with the joke without actually wanting to take it over. Um, but uh, politicians then, I mean, I suppose, have not really got into social media in a terribly big way. There were some, I suppose, earlier than Ed Balls. But, I mean, every politician now does have to use it. Well, maybe not ministers, um, although they still will, but people will probably do it for them. But, I mean, most MPs now would be using social media to report on what they're doing to their constituents and everybody else, weren't they? Most of them do. And of course, we're going to be touching on the use of other forms of social media, such as messaging platforms later on. But Twitter has a unique place in the political sphere in the fact that many politicians and many journalists are on it as well. A lot of news still breaks on Twitter and it's possible for many people to conflate political Twitter and subsets of that with a wider reading of the country. But Ed Balls Day represents a nice undiluted moment of joy i think for the political twitter sphere and it's something that i look forward to every year and the fact dead balls has got into it as much says a lot about how politicians can rehabilitate their images outside mm. of politics as well and ed balls has been hasn't been an mp now for six years he's now gone on to enjoy a career as a not only as an academic he's a considerably clever chap as well he's mm. a professor at harvard now but also someone who has enjoyed a softer image as well from his considerably uh rougher reputation when he was a cabinet minister and a shadow cabinet minister as well that there's a there's a story that when he was education secretary he phoned up my dad while we were driving and put my dad in in a rather bad mood i won't say what the conversation was about <laughs> but um it's 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 a nice thing to see and i think at the moment we we all we can all celebrate little moments of joy like that and it's it's one of those sort of yeah. positive political stories we can all start yeah. as well of course the highlight of his post-political career was performing with the george formby society along with frank skinner and uh, harry hill at the queen's 92nd birthday um, party concert at the, <laughs> the royal Albert hall um, but as you say it's a nice um, political story and those are relatively thin on the ground so tell us what we are talking about and what would have led had it not been for the exciting Ed Balls Day. Well where do we start I mean I'm tempted to say that we are seeing a tendency emerge so there have been three dominant periods of conservative government since the end of the second world war which ironically the first half of the 20th century was dominated by a lot of cross-party government as well the first of these was uh, the Tory period in office from 1951 to 1964. 
The second was Thatcher's period from 1979 to 1997. And the third is the period we're in now, 2010 to possibly 2024, but probably longer than that. And what we have seen in this is arguably the emergence of certain political trends, which are reflective of governments being in office for long periods of time, specifically the questions about how those at the top of the government uh, have used their influence both internally and externally here. So we're talking, of course, about David Cameron, but specifically at the moment, the thing we have to discuss is the row around how Boris Johnson has paid for the refurbishments of the flat above number 11 Downing Street, where he and his fiance and their young son live. Uh, what are the what are the actual rules about this? Because I, I, mean, I seem to remember that Tony Blair spent a good deal on refurbishment, didn't he? It was over a quarter of a million. That was quite a while ago. But what are the actual rules? What can they and can't they do? So at the moment, there is an allowance of £30,000 of taxpayers' money available each year for the residents. And it should be said that having a good residence there for politicians is something that I think most of us get behind. Um, particularly living above the shop. These are modestly sized spaces, I would say, given for central London, given that a lot of politicians can, you know, have large families like the Blairs did. Or, <laughs> yes. um, or many or, families in the case of Boris Johnson. Or yes. Boris does get a young family as yes. well. Um, so £30,000 a year is considerably general allowance. However, the costs for the refurbishment that have under, been undertaken since Johnson moved in have exceeded that and the question there is no question that he has ultimately paid for this himself the accusation is that the money initially came from a donation to the conservative party that johnson has since mm. paid back and that is the question that he has ducked this money came from an outside source a political donation and the costs of it rolls of water running to hundreds and hundreds of pounds thousands above this and it should be said that when Gordon Brown was comparatively living there, he only spent within the allowances on living above mm. the Downing Street flats. So he lived in those for 13 years. So a comparatively frugal dimension as well. And the flats had already been refurbished under Theresa May's time in office as well. Indeed, she gave the BBC a, a sense of what the costs were. Now, we, we, it's very tempting to focus on the individual costs of wallpaper and, and value for taxpayers' money. But what this is really is an issue of transparency. This is an issue of how the Conservative Party's considerable financial resources, and they are considerable, are deployed for the advantage of Boris Johnson and indeed the Prime Minister's wider attitude to scrutiny. And there's, there's a temptation to draw some conclusions here, but we have to say that the mechanisms for scrutiny of internal ministerial standards are clearly not up to scratch. Now, this week, the Prime Minister has appointed Lord Guite, the former private secretary to the Queen, a crossbench peer as his new advisor on ministerial standards. But the key word there is advisor. The um, the, the role, although he informs uh, the prime minister on things like this, you have to remember that Alastair Allen, who held the role, sorry, Alex Allen, I should say, who mm. previous held the role, resigned five months ago in a dispute over Pretty Patel. And this is a late, the latest in a long line of questions about ministerial conduct and interests going back to Robert Jemrick and Priti Patel, since this government has been in office that ministers have ignored. We have to remember that Peter Mandelson was sacked from the cabinet in 1997 and 2001 for, for offences a lot less than this, alone from his colleague Geoffrey Robinson. Mm. 
And then questions about his dealings with a pair of Indian businessmen over their visas. The fact that the Prime Minister has been judged by Labour to be marking his own homework over this is troubling. And the Electoral Commission have now opened an investigation because they believe the Tory party may have breached some rules over which donor allegedly covered the initial costs of the refurbishment. Has this dented the Conservatives' poll standing a week before the local elections as we record this? Well, no, some polls show an 11-point lead. But there's a worrying concern here about a wider political apathy that runs through English voters here, particularly when it comes to Boris Johnson and Labour. And the fact that Keir Starmer is making some sort of high-faluting argument about the Nolan principles, which are seven principles set out to govern practice in public life, is worrying. And I think also we need to be looking at the health of our body politic around this too. But this is about much more. This is about trust and accountability at the very top of government. And the fact that we've had two old Etonian prime ministers here acting, David Cameron and um, Boris Johnson acting with little regard for formal channels here, really harks back, I think, to sort of the, the old boys network government of the Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume eras here. And we'd hope that we'd come a long way since that. Do we really need another Profumo scandal mm. to dispel the myth that old Etonians have to have more um, awareness, self-awareness mm. of how they run the country? Yes, some talk of being dismissive about uh, John Lewis furnishing. I saw one commentator today say, you know, you cannot disaccompany a company like John Lewis and expect not to suffer politically. Um, do, we talked last time um, about some of the problems faced by the SNP governing in Scotland and how you felt a lot of the problems came out simply because they had been ruling unopposed for so long. Do you think there's an element of that here as well? Absolutely. That, you know, with a weak opposition, they just feel they can do whatever they want Well, after 11, to some extent. After 11 years in government and four general election victories, the Tories are on their full successive term in office now, not a full term. But you have to remember that when the allegations of sleaze came up for John Major's government, it was also a tired administration. And we have to add, we have to date this government in dog years because they've been through arguably some much more bruising political dealings than Thatcher or Major had to deal with. There's been Brexit, there's been the financial crisis, there's been COVID as well. Mm. Now, this government has become quite tired. It was lucky with the 2019 election, it got an injection of fresh blood in the Commons as well. But what we also lack is a series of political heavyweights at either side. And Labour are at their lowest ebb now than arguably since 1983, arguably since 1935. And what they haven't got are the figures behind it to back up as well. So there are a number of factors happening here. I'm taking the longer political view here because I think that there are worrying trends here that point to the emergence of one party government in each constituent part of the United Kingdom, with the exception of Northern Ireland, which has to operate on a cross-community basis. And even that is under threat, given that there is a considerable destabilising force happening there, which we're going to touch on later. Labour in Wales, SNP in Scotland, Tories in England as well, with Labour having two less than 200 MPs and polling 11 points behind, in spite of everything that has happened to this government since Johnson took over, and before that with Theresa May, and before that with David Cameron, we have been governed by a series of political pygmies since 2010. And not, not to say that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair didn't have their faults, but they were men of considerable talent here. And Margaret Thatcher before that, and John Major, who's seen, ironically, as a model of integrity. He's one of those politicians who a, a YouGov poll showed this week, or is it Ipsos Murray, showed this week that the voters considerably trust. 
Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are at the lower end of that scale. Keir Starmer has only been in office for a year. Labour's best route back into the office, I would argue, is to make a case for integrity. But for a lot of people, particularly those people who've been drawn to Boris Johnson to vote for him since 2019, he does have a certain Teflon image. And Labour have to remember if they're going to go down this route, there is a certain element of political risk priced in. What they have to prove is that Johnson is disconnected from ordinary voters. And I think there's considerable stuff to do that. And the allegations that Dominic Cummings has raised about that do. But I am worried we are seeing a reversion to the old boy networks of governing the country where voters simply believe that these people, because of the way they carry themselves and the confidence that they have their best interests at heart. And that reflects not a deference, but an antipathy, I would argue, to the way in which we are governed. And that's a very dangerous trend. And unfortunately, if voters continue to go down this line, and to disregard how the conduct of our um, officials in office, then there is no push, no accountability for it as well. And if the local elections deliver a sweeping victory for the Conservatives, or at least consolidate their position, particularly in the Red Wall seats and the West Midlands mayoralty, which bear in mind, Andy Street, who is the candidate in that election, has felt he has to distance himself from the Conservatives here. There are worrying trends here about the way this country is governed, which might mean that we are seeing the same problems we've seen in Scotland begin to emerge in England of unaccountable administration, poor administration going through, and the running of key public services suffering as a result. Mike, thank you very much indeed. Let's uh, change our focus. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, now, we should turn our attention to Dominic Cummings. Um, we perhaps thought we'd seen the last of him, but clearly not. So why is he back in the limelight now? Well, when Dominic Cummings was forced out at the end of last year, many people began wondering what he would do once on the outside of the tent. What we have seen now is coming back to arguably something connected to our first book, which is a question of prime ministerial judgment. Boris Johnson is somebody who has surrounded himself with a group of advisors who are seeking to substantiate a figure that whilst he could be an entertaining figure on the stage, doesn't have a great deal of substance or a set political view. And it's something that he had in common, I think, with David Cameron, although I would argue that David Cameron arguably has a firmer moral compass than Boris Johnson does, although not much more of one judging by the uh, the Greensill mm. scandal as well. What Johnson has, though, is this very mercurial, quite difficult figure in Cummings, who is now on the outside of the tent, but also knows a lot about what went on inside Down Street for the couple of years that he was in that role bearing in mind that Dominic Cummings had considerable power and influence behind the scenes. There were questions about his conduct with special advisors, not least of all sacking one of Sajid Javid's advisors on the spot because he alleged she was briefing against number 10. But now Dominic Cummings has made a series of allegations that highlight the sort of internecine warfare that is happening behind the scenes. And crucially, the headline allegation that's come out is that at a private meeting, Boris Johnson said he would, quote, 
let the bodies pile high allegedly rather than impose a second national lockdown at the end of October. Now, for what we know of the Prime Minister's instincts on this, we know that this would resonate with his views. We, he has denied making these remarks. The issue has become that behind the scenes, Johnson is surrounded by different factions within the Tory party. And there is increasing talk and weight being given to those who have aligned with supposedly his fiancee, Carrie Simons. Now, I have to say that the increasing focus on Miss Simons is something that to me has an increasingly sexist undertone here. I think it's only fair that the prime minister listens to and is advised by their spouse, their close advisor, Theresa May relied closely on her husband as well. What the papers are doing here is largely overlooking the Prime Minister's um, own lack of judgment. If he is being pushed around by Kerry Simons, that is a question of Boris Johnson's own weakness of character, not of Miss Simon's own influence here. The common figure here, the so-called chatty ratties that the, ta- the tabloids have dubbed them on, is a man called Henry Newman, who has worked with both Michael Gove and now works in number 10 with Boris Johnson, who has been implicated by Mr Cummings as the... Uh, person who's leaked that remarks to the Daily Mail. But don't forget, Mr. Uh, Cummings and his ousted compatriot Lee Kane also have an axe to grind here as well. There is always a degree of power politics behind the scenes in number 10. You can't have an operation that's both as intimate and as influential as Downing Street without different factions at court, particularly when you've got someone like Boris Johnson, who is very susceptible to being led one way or the other as well. And prime ministers do have to have close advisors and favourites. What the prime minister will now be wondering is who he can place his trust in. Can it be Newman? Should it have been Dominic Cummings, given the fact that Mr Cummings has generated considerable flack for him as well? And the prime minister expended so much political capital in order to keep him in post after the Barnard Castle incident last year. At the end of the day, though, this is really a question about Mr Johnson's judgment here. He has a politically weak cabinet, argue with the exception, I think, of Mr Gove and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. And even then, there's a considerable uh, resistance to how they could push back. But Boris Johnson is still leading the country in terms of opinion polls, but voters see him as somebody, broadly speaking, who lacks integrity, but they don't seem to be willing to push him on it and what do we think about that this bbc um story about sir james dyson um saying that he was a, a major donor of the conservative party and that he was uh, trying to extract favors from bryce johnson when um they were offering to to build uh, ventilators back at the beginning of the crisis and um, the bbc have now admitted that it simply wasn't true i think dyson actually wrote an article saying he'd only ever given 800 pounds in political donations in his entire life and that what the BBC seemed to have done was assume that some payment from the James Dyson um, Foundation, which I think only amounted to £11,000 or so in two years, was actually for the Wiltshire Engineering Festival um, and was trying to get you know local school pupils to be interested in engineering. But I mean, it seems extraordinary that the it's almost impossible to find the apology from the BBC. If a newspaper made accusations like that that turned out to be totally untrue, they'd be hauled over the coals, wouldn't they? It's very easy to go too far in this situation. And of course, we have to remember back in 1998, Tony Blair's squeaky reputation, someone who ran against Tory Slees, ironically, in that 1997 election, was tarnished by the Bernie Eccleston affair, where a million pound donation to the Labour Party in that time resorted in an exemption from a ban on tobacco advertising for Formula One, who Eccleston, hemp 
problems as well. There are other deeper questions going on here about prime ministerial judgment and access relating to Greensill and David Cameron, not the least as well. Mm. But Johnson, James Dyson, James Dyson is an influential businessman. He's been an influential figure on Brexit as well. And these sort of connections are being scrutinised by the media at the moment. There are journalists looking into the activities, say, of all party parliamentary groups as well. And other things, too, about, in my opinion, it's entirely appropriate that uh, businesses can fund political parties, that those donations have to be declared. What is needed, I think, from government is a greater disclosure about the meetings that already happened. And I point to an excellent article written by uh, Chris Cook for Tortoise here, where he talked about how the government should strengthen the Freedom of Information Act for the disclosure of these meetings. And actually, meetings with senior civil servants and everything like this should be done through the proper channels. Yes, and you talked about this last time when we were discussing uh, lobbying. And in in this case, I think Dyson said he'd only ever met Johnson three times. That was always with officials present. So presumably everything was actually minuted and hasn't the last time was in 2016. It just seems to be making a storm out of it. You know, there are plenty of other things going on, as you point out. It just seems almost um, trying to make a a mountain out of a a molehill. But maybe we should look... um, elsewhere uh, in a moment so let us change our focus once again sharing ideas about money this is share radio so mike we need to look at uh, northern ireland don't we and arlene foster's um resignation as head of the dup so why has this happened arlene foster has been beleaguered in her role as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party since she took over from Peter Robinson in 2015. She has been the first woman to lead both the Northern Down Executive and the DUP, but only the third leader in the DUP's 50-year history. She has been under pressure ever since a questions about the renewable heat incentive led to the collapse of the power-sharing executive mm-hmm. in 2016. She shared, she held the role with the late Martin McGillis for only a number of months here as well. The There are always complicated political elements in Northern Ireland, and I think it's wrong to pin it on a simple, uh, a single element here as well. But relationships between... Um, the DUP and Sinn Féin have been strained for a while now. And I think this is more um, more about the DUP's own concerns about its um, political position, given that there is... under So, for context on this, mm-hmm. under um, <laughs> Arlene Foster's influence the DUP has retained its leading role in the executive also the unionist majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly has gone but the DUP also exerted for a time considerable influence on Theresa May's government as well oh yes I remember that yes but it's also has seen a Brexit solution imposed at a time which did not agree and argue the DP under Miss, Miss, Mrs. Foster's influence squandered its influence in that on that Tory government. When Boris Johnson came in, he just rode roughshod over that as well. 
it's hard. And also we have to remember that there are changes to things like Northern Ireland's abortion laws and a commitment to an Irish language act, which have caused some concerns among DEP representatives too. The no confidence letter was circulated, was signed by more than 20 DEP assembly members and four MPs. So it's a very tiny selectorate. What the DEP argue we need is an open contest. The proposal is that they will split the role between Arlene Foster's uh, role as DUP leader and co-leader of the Northern Ireland Executive, which she holds with Michelle O'Neill, who is her um, Sinn Féin counterpart. I think actually having a split post might do the DUP some good. There have been three people touted as possible people to replace her as DUP leader. So Geoffrey Donaldson, who's the current Westminster leader, Edwin Poots, who is a minister in the executive, and Gavin Robinson as well, who is a, is a, D, a DUP MP too. I'm intrigued to see uh, what Naomi Long, who is the, uh, the Alliance Justice Minister in the executive, has said, and she believes that Mrs Foster has been made a scapegoat for the strategic errors made by the DUP at this time. It does seem to me that Mrs. Foster has been forced out at a time in which the the DUP is facing a tricky reckoning, particularly over the uh, political storm imposed after the uh, imposition of some form of board down the Irish. The DUP didn't offer any constructive solutions on the um, border solution as well. Uh, there's also addition with border legislation, same-sex marriage, policing, and a recent debate about gay conversion therapy at Stormont as well. The DUP has a reputation for being a very traditionally conservative party, but I have uh, friends who within the DUP itself who have told me that actually the party is more progressive on this from certain parts as well. And I can only hope that the DUP will embrace such changes too and then move on to more constructive ground. The assembly elections are next year. There is danger, however, that the DP has to nominate a first minister to work with Miss O'Neill until that time. And it's hard to see who the candidate might be in that situation as well. But watch this space. And of course, if a replacement cannot be agreed, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has to call another assembly election early. So it might be the DUP are trying to force an early poll as well. But as ever with Northern Ireland, nothing is ever simple. <laughs> well, after crossing a small stretch of water, let's cross a rather bigger one and uh, look at the United States and um, uh, President Biden's first 100 days. I mean, it it's always seems a little unfair, uh, perhaps looking at presidents um, after only 100 days in office. It seems like it was only yesterday we were doing this with um, a certain Mr. Trump. Oh, sorry, President Trump, I apologise. Um, so how do we rate uh, what's happened so far? It's, it's not been without incident. It hasn't. Um, at the moment, President Biden is enjoying a 59% approval rating. He has proven to be in office more radical than many people would expect himself to have been. He is currently uh, pitching for Congress to deliver the a $4 trillion, that's a nearly $3 trillion spending package for the largest overhaul in US benefit systems since the 1960s that took place under his predecessor, um, Lyndon B. Johnson, as well. There is a slim Democratic majority in both houses. What is interesting is that I think we have to remember is that President Biden clearly believes that he has a limited period in time to make his mark in office. He is 78. Um, 
I, I was intrigued actually by the US comedian Bill Maher, who is an always an interesting barometer for the left of the uh, the Democratic Party here as well, because he equally is critical of the younger generation, but also believed that in his view that Mr. Biden hadn't put a foot wrong in office. And I think broadly speaking, the uh, the US uh, public would agree with that. That isn't to say that there haven't been controversial changes. Mm. Mr. Biden is targeting what he talk, calls corporate America and the wealthiest 1% to pay their share. The American jobs plan he's presented as the first part of this is seeking to rebuild infrastructure as well, a commitment to modernize 20,000 miles of highways, roads, and main streets to deliver clean, clean drinking water, whilst also extending, uh, whilst his American Families Plan will look to ensure that rescue plan benefits and child benefit pensions can increase as well. It is adding more money on at the time, but it clearly demonstrates your power for using central government to support Americans at this time. The majority of Biden's spending money will be targeted on transport and infrastructure spending, then on uh, LD benefits, then childcare education, and then drinking water infrastructure as well. It's very much designed to cap off the first 100 days too, but it's also showing a dynamic and interesting administration as well. But it's also provided a platform for the Republicans to move on from Donald Trump, perhaps, with Senator Tim Scott, who is the only black senator for the Republicans, um, providing the main rebuttal too. And hopefully, as a wider discourse, this will allow the Republican Party and the US to move on from the Trump administration as well. The fact that this speech took place against the backdrop of armed guards and security fences around the Capitol still, when five people died in those riots only months ago, shows there are still deep political divisions in America as well. But with the the murder conviction for the officer relating to George Floyd passed last week, there could be a time for healing in America as well. And I want to quote just Senator Scott's remarks just to cap this podcast off when he said, America is not a racist country. It's determined to fight discrimination and didn't, and it's also backwards to fight discrimination with other types of discrimination and wrong to use our painful past to dishonestly shift shut down debates in the present. I think those words are prescient and something that is appealing to both sides of the debate in America at the moment too. President Biden's made a good start. He may only be a footnote in American history. He may go down as a consequential leader as well. But his first 100 days mm. on climate change, on jobs and investment have left a mark. Any, and any indications yet about um, foreign policy? I think we have to remember the fact he's held a major climate change summit this week as well. He retains the Sino-skeptic line of Donald Trump as well, which is interesting. And he's made a commitment to cutting US emissions by a record level since 1990 as part of this too. Joe Biden is a man in a hurry. He's clearly wanted this job for a while now. And I hope that the changes he's proposing will go through. But he has a divided Congress, a narrow majority in both houses, and only a couple of years before the next midterms to make his mark. He's learning from his mistakes in the Obama administration, though, when things went too slowly, which in my mind suggests that he might have something profound to offer America, even at the ripe old age of 78. 
Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back talking to me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.